The Bob Murphy Show, episode 98. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy hey everyone welcome to another episode of the bob murphy show this one i just thought i would share some thoughts on some of the cultural battles that we're seeing play out uh, because I just, I saw certain connections, certain perspectives that seemed interesting to me. And I thought perhaps you folks would enjoy hearing these perspectives as well. So the main thing I want to get across is that there's a sense in which the intolerant progressive left, when it comes to their treatment of people on the alt-right, let's say, that their uh, approach is comparable to those of the anti-vaxxers. All right? And I'm not using that term anti-vaxxer with uh, disdain, even though that's often how it's used right now in our culture. I'm just stating it as a fact. And I think that's, that's interesting. Right? So that's what I just want to explain here. So if you are someone who fits that description, right? if you're someone on the progressive left and you think, no, the science is fine, and you roll your eyes at these parents who have the audacity to not want to vaccinate their children because, you know, they're doing internet sleuthing and they think, you know, everybody's out to get them. It's all a big conspiracy. Okay. Learn some science, you nut job, especially if you're religious. Okay. So there's some of you who think that. I get that. But I'm saying when you actually think through, you know, what what are the ostensible benefits of vaccination? How does that work? What exactly is going on when people get vaccinated and so on? and you think that's a good idea, I can make what I think is a pretty compelling case that that's also why you should be a lot more tolerant of people with whom you disagree politically. And so if any, if, or if nothing else, you know, this podcast is aimed towards you. I'm, I'm not trying to say, ha ha, hypocrite. I'm just pointing it out. And I think you should probably try to at least resolve to your own satisfaction, you know, what, what, what your stance is. Also, later in this episode, though, I'm going to go on to some other areas where I'm largely talking to those on the right. And uh, I just want to point out some issues in terms of ways of viewing the culture wars that might clarify things. So it has to do with, it's an analogy to gun control or it's extension of that logic. All right, so like I say, with this, not so much trying to change people's opinions on things, I'm just trying to give a different perspective, a way of seeing it that I haven't seen others make these connections before. Okay, so when it comes to vaccines... You know, just let's just recapitulate what the standard argument is, the mechanism. So the idea is you're introducing into the human body a weakened form of a virus. And so the immune system figures out how to defeat the virus in its weakened form. And so now when you actually get exposed to it out in the real world in its stronger forms, the forms that's going around and knocking people out, or, you know, killing them in worst case scenarios, that your body, your immune system already knows how to fight that off because it got practice, as it were, with the vaccine. You know, you already know how to make those antibodies and so on. All right. And so what's the danger of, we said, well, wait a minute, 
you know, if, if the human body is capable of fighting off the virus out in the real world, what, what does the vaccine do? Or, or going the other way, what's the harm of not giving people a vaccine? Why can't you just figure it out the first time you get exposed? And again, not coming from a medical doctor here, just coming from me <laughs> learning the basic theory of a vaccination like everybody else that going to school and such. The explanation has to be something like, well, if the first time the body gets exposed to it, it's like the thing in its raw, pure form or its strong form, then the body, by the time the body figures out how to defeat it, it's already too late. It's already been, you know, the, the virus has already spread so much the body is, is compromised and it's, you know, it loses the war. Whereas again, if it gets practice as it were on the, on the vaccine sample, which is weaker, then it's able to uh, fend off the real thing, right? Something like that. I'm going to think that's a decent summary. Okay. So before I move on, let me also mention too, uh, this type of approach is also, you see it like when it comes to cosmopolitan types criticizing puritanical U.S. culture as contrasted with the more liberal Europeans and sophisticated Europeans. So like when it comes to underage drinking, right? So the claim is, and I'm, you know, I I think there's some truth to this. Certainly sounds not unreasonable to say that, oh yeah, in Europe, it's not a big deal if like your 13-year-old daughter has a glass of wine with dinner, you know, sitting with her parents. That, that, you know, that's not a crazy thing. Whereas in the U.S., it's not only, you know, illegal and in some places, you know, pretty strictly enforced, but also just socially and whatnot, like you would be construed as a bad parent if someone saw you letting your 13-year-old have a glass of wine with dinner or maybe not universal, but some people would think, oh, that's a bad parent over there, right? It's, so it's a real zero tolerance uh, thing. And so because of that, the claim goes, again, folks, this, I'm not saying this is my view. I'm just saying this, I've heard this presented. And so I'm just reminding people of this. So the, the claim continues that uh, because of that, then when kids go off to college and their parents aren't hovering around to provide a, 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 an environment where they can't get away with mass drinking, now they're off on their own. The first beer they've had is when they're a freshman in college at a frat party. They're going to just, they're not going to know what they're doing. They're just going to keep drinking until they puke their guts out. And some people might, you know, get alcohol poisoning. And so the claim being, the parents were doing them a disservice by being so puritanical when they lived at home. It actually would have been better if the kid learned how to drink, learned how to hold his liquor, you know, under this careful supervision of his parents and older brothers and sisters or whatever in that environment. So then when they went off into the real world and faced the extreme form of binge drinking, they are, you know, they were prepared to handle it. Right. So same kind of, idea. You can see the similarity there, even though obviously the physical mechanisms are different, but you get the idea. The spirit of those two types of views is similar. And I would say in practice, most progressives, at least not in the United States, let me be clear that actually the people I follow on Twitter, they're, they're largely from the United States. So when I'm here commenting on cultural battles or you know political camps and the partisans and how do they weigh in on these issues. I'm mostly speaking about the people of the United States. So maybe I'm not, you know, my remarks don't really resonate with people from other countries. In any event, return to my train of thought here. So not only, you know, do I know a lot of people who would 
hold the two views I just said. I think that's most people on the progressive left would largely agree with those two things. That, yep, vaccines are are fairly safe. We can trust the doctors, the medical experts on that, that, you know, for, you know, children without compromised immune systems or whatever, you know, some other kind of special extenuating circumstance, they should get the normal battery of vaccinations according to the standard schedule and that parents who object to that are unscientific, uninformed, and they're just responding to some, you know, trumped up uh, scare stories put out there by anti-vax activists or, you know, people who are looking to profit from the gullibility of uh, overprotective parents, right? And progressive leftists, I think, would also endorse the idea that Europeans are much more sophisticated. They're much cooler about drinking and therefore their kids don't go off to college and, and get alcohol poisoning. Whereas in the United States, the kids do go off and get alcohol poisoning because again, they overreact. They think drinking is so awful and so unacceptable that by having a zero tolerance policy during the high school years, the parents are ironically and perversely setting their kids up to be struck catastrophically by the actual dangers of alcohol consumption later in life. All right, so you can see the similar. So again, not only are the, the, those types of arguments comparable in spirit, but actually I think in practice, a lot of people on the progressive left would endorse both of those arguments. Okay. Now one that I, they might not because of the recent fires in New Zealand. So I don't know if now because they see the connection to climate change the people on the left might distance themselves from this. But I think it's pretty standard to say that there was a period where the conventional wisdom, when it came to forest management, you know, like the national parks and whatever, there was a a period where they had like a zero tolerance policy with respect to fires, right? That any fire that they saw break out in, you know, land that was controlled by the federal government, let's say, they would immediately act to suppress that fire, to put it out immediately. And so the problem with that strategy was these like normal, almost therapeutic or house cleaning little fires that would get rid of the brush and whatever weren't allowed to happen, right? So, I mean, think of it this way, like before the year 1800, humans really didn't have much control over forests. And yet it's not like all the forests burned down one time when the lightning struck and there was a big blaze and oh geez, there's no... There's no humans with helicopters and firefighters putting up, you know, walls and whatnot, and right? So nature on its own didn't have all the forests just all burn up because humans weren't there to carefully steward the forests, right? So nature left to its own devices doesn't burn down all the forests all the time. And so the idea is the, what the mechanism was that, oh, yeah, these occasional little fires would uh, just keep things in check so that no enormous... Uh, inferno can develop. And so the problem was when they had, when the humans intervened and had this zero tolerance policy that they would quickly snuff out any little fire that broke out. Well, then that allowed, you know, for the basically accumulation of kindling and whatnot in terms of if you wanted to start a gigantic inferno that the whole, would engulf the whole forest, what they were doing is what you would do to set that up. So it'd be a very fragile thing that, yeah, you'd go a while without any fires. Oh, look, we're doing a great but you were making yourself more and more vulnerable to, oh, gee, if it ever, if one ever sparked and, and grew out of our ability to immediately contain, then it would be unstoppable. Whereas in the previous regime, um, because they didn't, you know, they, they wouldn't act to suppress little dinky fires, 
that actually kept the whole system more robust. That if something did break out, it couldn't spread to the whole system because there had been other little fires here and there over the years. So that like, you know, the, there were islands of little channels where the, the fire wouldn't spread over. Right. I'm, I'm sure what I'm saying is not the best way to paraphrase it, but that's the, the spirit of what the critique was. Okay. So again, so the, like I said, on that one, I don't know if progressive leftists would endorse that particular version of history and agree with, ah, yes, you know, the current state of the art of management of forestry reserves is to take a more of a, more of a hands-off approach. So I, I don't know what the average leftist would say. Cause again, I think they would say, wait a minute, this sounds like those conservatives trying to blame the uh, fires on land practices rather than unrestricted fossil fuel emissions. Right. So I see that, but in any event, that's another example of the type of mechanism I'm talking about where whether you agree with that or not, you can at least see that, oh yeah, there's a prima facie case to be made that a zero tolerance policy when it comes to fires in a forest that you're managing might actually set you up for disaster. And where I saw that first fleshed out was um, Mark Spitznagel. He's a fund manager. I think he used to work with Nassim Taleb. But anyway, not you know he's on his own now. And uh, he had a book come out called The Dow of Capital that I, you know, I helped consult with on, you know, some of the chapters about Bombaverkian capital theory. And uh, so anyway, that book, Spitznagel's book, he makes that analogy. So for Spitznagel, that's what he thinks the Federal Reserve has done when they come in and do little rescue things, you know, like long-term capital management, rescuing them, you know, um, Bear Stearns, stuff like that, that that doesn't, you know, by, by having a zero tolerance policy for the failure of a big institution, big financial firm, that's actually making the whole system more vulnerable to a gigantic catastrophe. And so, and so he was using the, you know, the forest management as an analogy to show why the Fed's policy. And so it would be misleading to just look and say, no, things have been pretty good for the last X years, you know, better than they were before. Now that we're, you know, more actively intervening to prevent hardship that no, actually what you're doing is setting the whole system up for a gigantic crash down the road. When some trigger happens that is temporarily beyond your ability to contain, then it's going to spread like wildfire. All right. So that's another example. And clearly <laughs> the progressive left wouldn't agree with that particular version of the argument, but notice the similarity in all these different things with actual, you know, vaccination, uh, forest management, an approach to containing underage drinking. And then of course, uh, like I just said, monetary policy, the idea, idea being that more of a hands-off, let nature run its course could be better. <laughs> now what's funny too, I, I realize as I'm saying that with the actual vaccinations, the parents who are anti-vaccine, yeah, that's what we're saying. Let nature run its course. All right. I get that. But so let nature plus pharmaceuticals run their courses. That's, that's the idea on these things. All right, so in all these cases, really what it is, so instead of saying let nature run its course, let me be more specific. The real issue is let a little bit of hardship or of whatever the problem is, let a little bit of it occur. And then the system that you're trying to protect will figure out how to defend itself from that little thing. And that makes the system stronger. Okay, that's the common thread in all of those things. Like I said, to say let nature run its course isn't quite right because vaccination doesn't sound like that, does it? Right? So that's the common thread in all those, those different 
applications that I just walked through. So now let's say you're a progressive leftist and what you really fear is a return of Nazi Germany. You really don't want neo-Nazis seizing political power. And so the current approach is anytime they see anyone who says anything remotely in their minds offensive or related to the possibility of some races being superior or just any kind of chauvinism whatsoever, they immediately label that as white supremacy and treat it on par with Mein Kampf, right? That there, there's, there's no, it, it's a zero tolerance policy. That's what I'm getting at, right? So whether it's somebody who explicitly called, you know, for political system having to, based on racial hierarchies, that person is lumped in and is described by the same term as someone who just says, you know what, I think we need to start enforcing immigration law. And especially if the, the person talking about the immigration law, if it sounds like, you know, if he says something like, I mean, projections show that by 2050, uh, you know, whites will be a minority in this country, that that is the exact same thing. Like we're going to use the same tactics to respond to someone who just said that statement as to someone who said, I think we should initiate apartheid here in America, right? So I think you guys can probably see where this is going, that that doesn't seem to be a good idea. That seems like if, if the threat is real, if there really is a chance that some version of fascism would return to the United States, particularly in the form of racial hierarchies along the, the model of Nazi Germany, right, that I think you would make that outcome more likely by adopting the current tactics of the left, namely denouncing anybody who's even a bit to the right of you as a fascist or a neo-Nazi when clearly those people don't think they are. And if you ask them, hey, do you like the Nazis? They would say, what are you talking about? No, of course I don't. All I'm saying is right now, you know, we, we're not enforcing immigration law. That seems kind of crazy to me, right? So um, to be clear, I'm not saying here, oh, that's unfair. It's, you shouldn't label people who are really want to enforce immigration law is Nazi, you should, you should come up with some other term because that's, that's more sympathetic or that's the, the... I'm not even talking about that right now. I mean, it, it's true. I, for other reasons, I have problems with less strategy and tactics here, but I'm just making here the neutral observation that if you could see the mechanism I just talked about in those other areas, can't you see why something like that might happen here, right? That perhaps by having a zero tolerance policy for bigots, let's put it that way, you allow the most potent, pure forms of bigotry to then hit the system, right? The system can't first develop a response to somebody like Tucker Carlson. Like, okay, yeah, you know, some of the stuff he says, you know, so without denouncing him, just having him up there and having civil disagreement with him and pointing out to people, you see how his, you know, he's hiding behind the claim of enforcing the law, but let's look at the implications there and let's have a national conversation. Right there, you're allowing the public and the body politic to be exposed to a weaker form of the alt-right, right? So if that's the way you're thinking of the alt-right is this virus that needs to be contained. And, and I know I, that's very dehumanizing and I could see why people on the alt-right would say, oh my gosh, I can't believe they're thinking of us like this. This is outrageous, but okay. But let's say that you're someone on the left and you do think of alt-right ideas as a virus as a, in a sense that needs to be contained Notice your strategy right now is analogous to anti-vaxxers. You, you should be willing to allow 
small, weakened versions to exist because that presumably would make our institutions more competent and able to reject the extreme forms. Instead, if there's no tolerance, and so just like the kid who's never allowed to take a sip of alcohol, the first time he has a beer is when he's surrounded by frack guys going, jug, jug, jug. And you can see how that's setting a kid up for disaster. Well, likewise, so if you're in a society where someone who wants to say, you know, I don't think that trans women should be able to participate in MMA and beat up other women. If saying that is what disqualifies you from having any role in public conversation, because now you're a transphobe and a bigot, well, then there's a lot of other people who think much worse things from you know, the, the pro-trans rights perspective. And so if someone who merely says, I don't think trans women should be allowed to beat up other women, that just seems wrong to me. If that gets as much penalty as someone who says something that's far worse than that, far more offensive and anti-trans, well, then you see how the type of people that would be willing to listen to that perspective, now you're forcing them to get it on the black market, as it were. That's another analogy. I didn't even think of that. When it comes to like prostitution and drug use, like marijuana and, and harder drugs, that's another standard leftist thing is to say, you know, this stuff's going to happen. There's people who want to pay for sex. There's people who want to smoke marijuana. There's people who want to use cocaine. You're not going to make them disappear just by passing laws. You're going to force them underground. And actually, they're going to end up using harder drugs and, you know, having things that are laced and they might be more overdoses and things. Or, you know, the might be more STDs transmitted through uh, prostitution if it's banned. Okay, so again, same sort of analogy. If what you don't want is for people who have latent tendencies of being prejudiced against other uh, you know, minority groups or people who have to them unusual sexual preferences and so on, by saying, if they listen to anybody who even makes an off-color joke alluding to certain stereotypes, boom, if that's gone and you got to go through your whole life, go through, you know, at your job, at your home and everything, and just pretend you don't have those things. And then the only way you're going to be able to talk about it is in secret internet groups or just, you know, in a closed conversation with people that you know think like you. It's actually allowing the more extreme forms to dominate the conversation. Again, just for all the same reasons that during alcohol prohibition, the bootleg liquor was more potent than what happens in the legal market, right? That if you're going to make moonshine and you're, and you're selling alcohol illegally anyway, the potency is going to be higher, right? Because you're, gonna, you're not going to want to carry around a huge volume of illegal alcohol. You're going to want it to be in smaller containers that you can more discreetly sell to people on the black market. All right, so that's that's the analysis, and so I, I find it interesting that the zero tolerance policy on the alt left is actually setting up the very people that they claim to oppose. And I think for some of this stuff, that's actually intentional. That I I think some of the people on the left know full well that Americans in general are not getting ready to embrace the neo Nazi party or something. And that they're just using those things as an excuse to gain more power. So I'm actually not accusing the people who know what's going on of hypocrisy. They know full well what they're doing. You know, in their mind, I mean, their official pronouncements might be hypocritical, but 
I, I'm not accusing them of like, oh, geez, I never thought of that way. But I'm saying more of the rank and file people who think they're just acting, you know, to to provide a humane world for the weakest among us, you know, that kind of a person. I'm saying if you think like I described when it comes to vaccines and parents teaching their kids about how to drink responsibly and, and all this other stuff and prostitution and other types of drug use, you think, oh, yeah, let's keep it safe and legal. Okay, so don't you see how there might be unintended consequences if you have a zero tolerance policy where even somebody like Joe Rogan now is completely off limits because he said, I don't think a trans woman should be able to beat up other women in MMA. I mean, that's okay. Hey, folks, I wanted to make you aware that on Monday, April 20th of 2020, I am going to be debating again at the Soho Forum in New York City. This time around, the resolution is to promote a Christian vision of human flourishing, Christians should support free market capitalism. So, of course, I'm going to be in the affirmative. Anthony Campolo is going to be in the negative. He is Professor Emeritus of Sociology at Eastern University in St. David's, Pennsylvania. If you're interested and you want to get more details, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash debate. And then that's going to redirect you to a site where you can get all the details. And then when you're there, if you want to buy the tickets, use the promo code Bob, all lowercase. Don't spell it backwards, but Bob, all lowercase, to get 25% off. is an added little treat, folks. Besides seeing the debate between me and Anthony Campolo, the moderator is going to be Judge Knapp. So an extra special treat for this one. So again, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash debate to see all the details. And then if you want to pull the trigger, use promo code Bob, all lowercase, for 25% off the official price. Incidentally, while I'm talking about vaccines, something else that occurred to me. So when I had Brittany Schaefer on, so that was bobmurphyshow.com slash 75, she mentioned something that I hadn't heard before. Well, I don't know if she said it on the episode or if I saw her say it on Facebook. But in any event, you know, people were making fun of the anti-vax parents and, um, and Brittany clarified and said, well, hang on. For a lot of them, it's not that they just started Googling stuff and then became, you know, got taken in by some hucksters, that they were normal parents who thought vaccines were fine, just like everybody else, until their kid had a bad, you know, reaction or a side effect. And then that's what made them look into it more. And we're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize, you know, so that's, that's the issue. She's saying that for a lot of the, quote, anti-vax moms in particular, it's because they went through the normal stuff that their pediatrician recommended and they just thought was normal and standard. And then something happened to their kid and they, you know, really think, no, this started right after the vaccinations. This isn't a coincidence and it's, you know, correlation versus causation. And we're being naive here. This was all right. So that I'm not here endorsing that or denying. I'm just saying that's the claim. And so it occurred to me, what would be interesting is if it turned out that the two camps actually were mostly right. In other words, the pro status quo when it comes to vaccination, I mean, if they're smart and they actually know what they're talking about, they won't just make a blanket statement saying, oh yeah, vaccines are safe. Because no, I mean, if you go to the CDC website, it'll show you all the people that should not be getting vaccines. So it's not that they're safe, if safe means incapable of harming anybody. What they mean is, oh, for most people, it's fine. And yeah, there's a very small chance of adverse side effects, but you know, that's true of just about anything. And we think the benefits greatly outweigh the harms, blah, blah, blah. Right. So that statement is consistent with the fact that, look, you got 
hundreds of millions of people in the United States. So even if the chance of something going wrong with vaccinations is 0.001%, there could still be a lot of people who had a bad reaction. And so it's, it's not wrong if those people all find each other at conferences and whatever and say, yeah, the public doesn't really understand the dangers of vaccination. Look what happened to us. Believe me, this is really bad. You know, this is a lot worse than getting the measles. What's happening to me right here? So let's really, so I don't know if I'm getting my point across here, but I'm, what I'm trying to argue is both camps could be right if what their stances were were the things I just said. Now, of course, in practice, both camps say more than what I just said. And so you say there's definite clash. They can't both be right. I get that. But I am pointing out that if vaccines, at least some of them, do make sense, right? That, oh yeah, the benefits of this being standard outweigh the possible downsides while still acknowledging that, the, yeah, a small percentage of cases, there are going to be adverse side effects from this thing, then it's possible you'd, you'd have the two groups who are quite sincerely going around and trying to get the public to see their perspective as opposed to one camp having the science on their side and the other side being a bunch of nut jobs. Or on the flip side, as opposed to one side being concerned parents speaking the truth and the other side being, you know, a bunch of people who are tools in the hands of the pharmaceutical lobbyists. All right. So anyway, just thought I'd throw it out there. It's kind of interesting. Last thing I want to point out is, again, <laughs> some of you might have thought this was standard stuff and you realize this five years ago, but I've never seen someone make this particular connection. I think the appeal of people like Alex Jones or David Icke um, in that genre is that they connect the dots, right? Because everybody can see that there's crazy things that government uh, officials try to implement. And so if it just seems like a bunch of random policies that each one of which is nutty and counterproductive and, you know, harms the general welfare and so on. And if you just thought, well, it's just because they're bumbling fools like that, it, that doesn't actually seem very compelling. It's sort of like, well, no, but wouldn't they half the time do something that was good, you know, without even knowing it just randomly <laughs> if they were just up there bumbling around. And yet it seems more systematic, doesn't it? And so in particular, the thing that really ties it together is if you, if you say something like, okay, what, what's the common theme in a lot of this stuff? Well, it seems like it's breaking down the traditional family and the church, right? That's the way to make sense of a lot of stuff. And also to make independent people subservient to the government, right? So um, having all of your so-called retirement savings, like going into 401ks and where you can't touch them, uh, just making the healthcare system completely ludicrous where no individual can survive on his own. Like if you're self-employed, and you're just buying health insurance over the counter, it is ridiculously expensive now because of all the stuff of the Affordable Care Act. So it wasn't good before then either, but the Affordable Care Act has made it a lot worse in terms of how expensive it is just to get standard health insurance coverage, especially if you've got a family, all right? If you're, if you're not going you know, through the conventional employer-provided route, but you're doing it yourself. So again, just another area. And if you, if you ever recently been, you know, to had a hospital visit or something, you get those bills. I mean, it's, it's a crazy thing. And I'll return to this theme in future episodes, but it's, it's nutty. Where else do you have to go get a service and you don't know how much it's going to cost until after they give it to you and you're financially on the hook. I mean, that's, if, you, if you've tried that, you know, I've, I've had my doctor recommend something 
and but like a test, like a blood test or something. And I want to know how much it's going to cost. And I'll call the place who's going to administer it. And they literally can't tell me or, or they won't, but they will not tell me. And so, you know, that's, like I say, well, imagine if you had to buy, imagine the car market, if you had to go buy cars and the dealer would refuse to tell you how much the car would cost until after you had bought it and got home with it. And then, then they'd send you something in the mail telling you how much money you owed them for that car. In that kind of a world, what do you think would happen to the price of cars? <laughs> so that's what's happening in healthcare right now. So again, with all these things, we, you know, we can sit there as economists or sociologists or whatever, people who believe in Christian values and go through and diagnose and say, wow, these are crazy policies for X, Y, Z. But then you step back and say, okay, but why are all these, why, why is this package of policies all being unrolled in front of us? What, why does it seem like the agenda is to go forward on these different areas that at least at first glance seem unconnected? And so one common element in all that is it destroys the independence and the stability of the people, the citizenry, and makes them utterly subservient to the state. They need the state to provide for their retirement. They need the state to provide their health care, to educate their kids and so on because they have nothing else. Their, their family has been dissolved. You know, they, they, don't, they don't get along with their parents anymore. They, you know, the extended family, that, that those relationships have all been severed. They don't have independent savings. They, they, they have to stay with their existing employer. You know, to get laid off would be catastrophic. They think there might be another recession soon, right? So that's another reason that they're not secure. Right, all these things. They don't believe in God. They can't just have faith that there's a benevolent being looking out for everybody and that he's got a plan because you know they've been taught from the beginning that no, that's superstitious nonsense. We're rational scientists now in this day and age. Right. So they so all the traditional things to hold them up have been taken away. Okay. So in that context, then how do you interpret the push for gun control? Where it seems like, gee, a lot of these gun control measures after there's a, a tragedy, you know, a tragic shooting the measures that a lot of people are pushing wouldn't even have done anything to prevent this particular tragedy. So it's almost like they want gun control on its own and it doesn't really have anything to do with these particular tragedies that then make motivate it, right? And so why are they pushing for gun control? Well, oh, because that's, again, just another way that the population can stand up for itself to be somewhat self-sufficient in addition to taking away their financial security, their faith in God, you know, their ability to rely on their extended family if they have fallen hard times, the ability to get affordable health care if something were to happen to them, you know, take all that away. And also we're going to take away your guns. And notice too, it's not merely like, oh, so that way, you know, when the boogaloo comes, it's going to be tanks versus unarmed people throwing rocks. No, but it's, it's, it's more than that. And that's also why the thing about, oh, you can't stop nuclear weapons. Th that's a red herring. It's not just to, for the population to protect themselves from the state. It's just to protect themselves from regular criminals in the private sector. All right. So, by the way, remember, I'm, I'm a pacifist here. So I'm not, you know, endorsing gun ownership as a means of self-defense. I'm just saying this is how, this is what it is. I know a lot of people think that way. And then saying you're taking away their ability. Of course, let's be clear as I go off a tangent here. I'm not for government enforced gun control because how does the government take guns from people? They send men with guns to grab them. So <laughs> if, if you want to achieve a good world where no one owns a gun, you don't get there by having people with guns do it. That, that doesn't make sense. That's hypocritical. That's contradictory. Okay. So in any event, that's the, the standard way somebody would explain, you know, gun control. Oh yeah. People have more power when they have 
independent retirement accounts that they can access at will when they have a money that you know is is not susceptible to government you know central bank inflation uh when health insurance is portable and blah 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 okay all that stuff when they have an extended family when they have a solid uh church that they go to and so forth likewise people are allowed to own firearms they feel more secure and so they are less reliant on the state to protect them okay so the the common theme in all this stuff is what things that are powerful and that could somehow stand up to the state or at least be competing power centers to the state are systematically being assaulted, right? To make it just, you know, the individual versus the state. And okay. So in that context, then it occurred to me when we see all these assaults on the patriarchy and, you know, heterosexual white men are just being absolutely demonized, that that's very analogous to the gun control debate, right? So when you see people talking about heterosexual white men, especially if they're rich, that's the way they're talking about assault rifles and like even that terminology, right? And it's, it's the same dynamic. I think it's the same ultimate explanation that the are, you know, in other words, the issue isn't really about the dangers posed by these. It's that in our current society, for various reasons, and some of which are not savory and pleasant, rich heterosexual white men have more power than other groups do, generally speaking. And so, of course, the groups that are trying to make the state utterly dominant above all other sectors of society, in addition to going after the church and the family and guns and decentralized money and da 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 da, da they're going to go after heterosexual, rich, white men. Of course they would. All right, so maybe some of you have thought of that all along or not, but that really uh, didn't click for me until recently. So I thought I would just spell that out. So the point, again, being just to clarify, to understand, so it doesn't seem like there's just a thousand and one different issues. It's more like, no, there's a few more fundamental issues, and that's kind of driving this other stuff with the, the tails just kind of thrown in. Well, with those cheery thoughts, I'll wrap up this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll catch you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.